Welcome to the Yale University Press podcast. I'm Jessica Hollihan, one of the podcast hosts, and I get to talk to authors of the art and architecture books published by Yale University Press. And today I get to talk to Abraham Burekson. Abraham teaches in the graphic design program at the Maryland Institute College of Art. He also co-directs an experiential performance group called Odyssey Works, runs an experience design certificate program, and writes books. His latest book is titled Experience Design, A Participatory Manifesto. Abraham, you also design houses, as if you needed more things to do. As an undergraduate, you studied architecture. Um, and you have spoken and written about the fact that there was a moment at which you came to realize that when you designed a house, you weren't actually designing a house. And this apparent paradox, I thought, was a great way to approach the idea of experience design as you talk about it in this book. So um, I'd like to start with that. And would you talk a little bit about that realization? Uh, yeah. Yeah. Um, Jessica, it's really it's really a pleasure to be able to talk to you like this at length. Um, and thanks for having me on here. You know, I always felt I always felt a little out of place in architecture, I have to say, you know, because I, I, I love the things that architects love. It's true. I love, love forms. <laughs> I love beautiful windows and, 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 and I love a good section drawing. But, um, but I always found that at, at the core of my interest in architecture uh, was something that wasn't quite matching the rest of the world, be that when I was in architecture school or working in firms or um, or just in communities, uh, I was always interested in the effect that these buildings were having on me. I, when I was a young architecture student, I I left school and went to the Middle East to travel around for various different reasons, and um, and I went to. Istanbul, and I lived there for a while, and I would walk in and out of the mosques, you know, those ancient, incredible structures of, of that city. And, and of course, we know the Hagia Sophia, maybe the Blue Mosque, but there are just countless incredible structures in Istanbul. It's really an architect's paradise. And, and what I found that blew my mind was that even though I had seen pictures of these structures and, and sort of fantasized about you know, what, what a world with those structures in it would be like to inhabit. I hadn't really, I hadn't really taken in what it would be like to be physically inside of them. I hadn't considered the possibility that walking into them would actually change who I was. And that's what happened. I, it, it, uh, the building was not just, um, not just a, a, a structure, not just a shelter. Uh, it wasn't even just a, a, a location where a certain activity could happen. Surely it was those things. Uh, but the building itself uh, was an experience that was designed for me. I, and everybody else who stepped in for each individual, one person at a time, you know, there's like a, there's a, a ritual to going into these places. You couldn't just walk into a mosque. I mean, unless it was a tourist site like the Hagia Sophia, you had to actually, you had to take off your shoes. You had to wash beforehand you had to enter in a respectful fashion and all of these things this choreography of a relationship with a space put put 
one into um, an understanding of how one must be in that space. It actually changed you. And later I went on to study the, the symbolism of Islamic architecture and Sufi architecture and these, the sort of idea about how the building represents uh, a kind of image of how the world is oriented and, and how it is spiritually understood. And, and if I hadn't been in those spaces beforehand, I would understand, I would have sort of comprehended that perhaps semiotically, perhaps uh, in terms of it sort of sending a message to the person that they could comprehend in their minds. But, but when I was in those spaces, it was actually putting me in a relationship to the world that was described by the building. When I got home, this way of looking at architecture, it, it didn't stop. It wasn't just about these dramatic, sacred pieces of architecture. I, I went back to my home and it was kind of like a, you know, I was living in a, my parents were in an apartment in New York. And, um, you know, it was like every other apartment in the building there was i mean it, there was nothing inherently special about it except for the fact that it 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 contained our lives and it was the site for experience it wasn't even it wasn't even so much in my comprehension at that point something that had been designed by an architect and built by a builder but 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 something that it, whose whose physical plant had perhaps been designed by an architect and built by a builder uh, but whose actuality, whose experience had been an ongoing project uh, taken on by everybody who had inhabited it, who had related to the design of it, who had been there um, through its development over the years. And I'm speaking about, of course, there's the marks that we all leave on a place, but there's also the narratives that inhabit a place. There's the ways that we learn to um, move through social and physical space together. All of these things are the experience of home or whatever um, whatever place we happen to be inhabiting. And later as I went and started working in architecture firms and eventually opened my own practice, uh, I kept asking this question, how do I, how do I design for that? How could the architectural practice be a practice of thinking about architecture as a piece of this? experience design rather than as a kind of uh, practice of making things. Mm. So what what is a key difference or a couple key differences between um, the process of designing a house in a non-experienced design mode and designing a house as an architect slash experienced designer? Well, I would say it's primarily about understanding the work in a context uh, that is a bigger spatial context, a bigger temporal context, a bigger social context. I am making a house. I am designing a house perhaps as an architect. And um, if I go with the sort of traditional mode of doing it with the standard practice of doing it, I just make the thing and make sure that my plans can be approved by the building department and everything's going to stand up, et cetera. It's a lot of work. Um, But if I'm working from an experience design perspective, I'm asking the question, what what is the function? What is the experiential function 
of this design? What is the function in the lives of the people who are going to inhabit it? These are my clients, but they may also be the families of my clients. They may also include the passers-by on the street, the communities that connect to these clients. The, the context can get quite large. Also, um, can I understand this as, a, as an intervention at a point in time that will change over time? Um, all of these things uh, actually require the architect to be a little bit more humble about their impact on the one hand and a little bit more broad thinking about um, the context in which they're acting on the other hand. So when I work with clients, we do uh, a phase zero now rather than jumping into phase one. And phase zero is when we start to ask the question, what is the purpose of this project? Obviously the purpose is we're gonna make a house or we're gonna do a renovation or we're gonna um, do some site planning. We're going to figure out the physical plant that's going to happen here on this on this property. Um, but what else are we interested in? Why are we doing this? What is the larger purpose of this project? And how might the architecture be understood differently? I was really inspired by um, a project by 212 Box and Eric Clough in New York called, um, well, it's known as the, the Mystery on Fifth Avenue. And they renovated a a house, uh, an apartment on Fifth Avenue in New York um, for a family that had some kids. And they built into this house a story that unfolded over the years of the children's lives as they grew up. And, you know, a message would come in the mail and they would discover that, oh, the door knocker was in fact a key. And if you put the key into the wainscoting, the wainscoting opened up and in there was a message. And uh, you know, this mystery unfolded. I believe they, there were record players embedded in the floorboards and, um, and a novel was written. Um, they, 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 they were thinking about the house as a site for storytelling and isn't a house always a site for storytelling? Isn't, isn't that what a home offers or at least one of the things that a home offers? And I think uh, I really love what they did. It felt like really experienced a real experience design approach to architecture. Um, and it was, it required, of course, for the architects to work with people outside their fields, to work with artists and writers and other kinds of designers and musicians. Um, because oftentimes experience design says, well, we need, we need something different than what your ordinary practice invites. Um, so that's another kind of, humbling <laughs> that architects have to engage with uh, what they what they design from an experience design perspective. Oh, what an extraordinary home that must have been to grow up in. Um, you write in the book quite a bit about empathy. What does empathy have to do with it? Well, first off, Yale University Press has published a fantastic book about empathy, which if you really want to get really deep into it, I highly recommend reading it. Uh, empathy if, is kind of obvious if you're designing experiences, right? Like you, you're designing for somebody else's subjectivity. How are you going to understand how that person is going to be receiving what you're creating? So on the, you know, on the sort of the first blush, it's absolutely necessary. And it is also 
would life be worth living? Would relationships be worth having without empathy? These are things that are just so human um, and so necessary. And so I, I would hope that the idea of designing from a point of view of empathy would be exciting, would be, uh, would, would kind of ring a bell with people <laughs> Uh, that says that, you know, design need not be this kind of cold uh, on the mountaintop approach to um, putting things into the world, that it could actually be relational. And, and, and it, it, it connects to the most human part of us. Um, that said, there are some problems and there's empathy has sort of come under fire in recent years and rightly so, um, because Empathy is, is this organic process of looking at another person and allowing something in us to fire. There is some science behind, behind this idea of mirror neurons, how if I see you crying, some part of me in my brain s simulates crying. There's, a, there's something so basic about feeling the feelings of another person in some reflective way. Um, and yet it has shortcomings and it's come under fire because, you know, we have empathy for people we know. We have empathy for people we see. We have empathy for people who look like us. Uh, it's tempting to throw out the baby with the bathwater because perhaps we have, we don't have empathy for people we are designing for who have different life experiences than us, who look different than us. Um, but, uh, but, Empathy is simply a part of a process. If we employ it rigorously, we start to um, pair it with research um, to learn about what we don't know, uh, with a, a kind of self-interrogation around our limits, i.e. I can empathetically relate to you, Jessica, as a person who's interested in ideas, but I also know I don't know that much more about you. And I and my empathy stops there and I need to be honest about that with myself. And, uh, and the, and the third kind of stool leg of, of empathy of rigorously applying empathy is inclusion. Maybe rather than just going to the books and figuring out things about you, Jessica, I could just bring you on, on the team and say, well, what is it that's missing here? And could we partner with you? Um, with these three L aspects to empathetic, application. Um, we can avoid both the problems of having no empathy and being cold and of um, the innumeracy and uh, the biases that come with empathy. Once we do that, it's possible to actually to actually take a look at our audience, say, what can I organically understand about them and how can I complement that and how can I do my best to create something not because it's the thing, not because I want a house that looks like this, but because I want to create something that will have a life within your mind, will have an effect on your emotions, something that uh, I can aspire to with some intelligence. Well, let's talk a little bit about broader applications. I, I think, you know, we've talked about architecture. I, I think when many people hear experience design, they think first in terms of user experience in the in the digital sense, designing websites and video games and things like that. Um, can you talk about how experience design as you have crafted it and think about it relates to so many other fields? Yeah, I want to say that 
UX and experience design. These are these are experience these are experience design practices. Um, but we're at this fascinating moment in uh, the practice of experience design. That's kind of an inflection point. There's a lot of people out there in just a crazy diversity of fields starting to work this way, starting to ask questions about the experience they're creating rather than the things that they are creating. And they are drawing on the learnings, uh, the experience design learnings, though they probably weren't called that, in myriad practices. So there's actually a long tradition that this field is drawing on. UX is one of them. Um, but there's also uh, in architecture uh, ideas about performativity. There's phenomenology. There's um, there's a lot of brilliant experience design research in education, especially uh, early childhood education, in religion, uh, in ritual design, and the people. A lot of the people who are thinking of themselves as experience designers these days are working with. Um, are working with immersive technologies, are working in entertainment, are working in art making and performance. And this is as it should be often. It's, it's, it's usually the artists who are kind of leading the way in a new way of doing things. But experience design, very simply put, is the, is the practice of, of designing the experience rather than the thing of saying, what is the subjective experience on the other end of this thing I'm making and how do I then reverse engineer my way into that? And when you put it that way, uh, there's no reason why it's a practice that doesn't work for um, political action groups or, uh, or back into education, higher education especially, um, for human resources, for um, even even bankers are starting to think about these questions, right? Because if we have certain names, um, if we have certain names that involve the lives of other people, why shouldn't we start to think about the lives of those other people and how they are affected rather than the things that we make? I'm working in my program, we have scientists and, and designers and uh, entrepreneurs. And right now we're working with, for instance, uh, a banker who's thinking about how to apply, how to, how to use the resources of her institution to change attitudes around climate change. This is an experience design challenge. I think about, um, little Amal. Did you follow little Amal as she walked across Europe that, uh, yeah, it was amazing, right? And and what was amazing about it, and for the people who didn't, um, you should go ahead and do the research if, if you want. Um, Little Amal's, I'd say, about a 12-foot-tall uh, puppet run by four people that walked from... Um, from walked across Europe in the, in, the, in the footsteps of countless refugees who also walked across Europe and... Of course, puppets are fun. Puppets are amazing. There's something that, that that grabs the imagination about a puppet. But this puppet was was going on a on a charted path, but in uh, in a very kind of real and challenging way. She 
had to enter, she tried to enter into cities that were not welcoming to refugees and she was turned away by uh, city governments. She had a hard time getting a visa to cross the English Channel into the UK. Um, she was she was going through the through these uh, through these uh, experiences that so many had gone through before, but she was presenting it in a different way. And people came and they walked with her, and it was an invitation to, to walk in a narrative that so many had walked in before, and to see what 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 happened as it happened. And this was a, a way of telling a story um, that was experiential and that. Um, that was radical for so many of the people who encountered it. I, I'm, I'm so sad not to have kind of gone on the walk with her. She shook the Pope's hand and you know, met celebrities, but she also had all these challenges. And this is one of these really interesting situations where you have um, a, a performance, a uh, piece of art um, walking on the line between the real and the performative. Um, between the, the the scripted and the unknown, kind of engaging with this sense of liveness that um, that is so rare, but but that we we can think of as a as a tool in experience design. When a thing feels alive, we engage with it, um, and uh, and and it starts to have the opportunity to have meaning for us. In the past few minutes, you've used both the word immersive and the word experiential. And you note in the book that those words are sometimes used interchangeably. Are there important distinctions, though? Absolutely. So immersive, it simply means, um, generally, when we talk about it, it means you're in something. And of course, that's experiential. We use them kind of interchangeably because it's always kind of a shock when we show up and we're totally surrounded by something. There's something about um, the attention that opens up, right? Oh, I'm surrounded by, by Mickey Mouse's world or, you know, I'm inside Macbeth. This is amazing, right? You're, you're, there's something super extremely powerful about being physically immersed. Something that's experiential is something that is experienced. And it's a bit of a kind of non-word in the end, actually. What, what, what's more interesting about the term experiential or experience design uh, is that we're considering it from the point of view of the experience that's created. It's not, we're now not designing that immersive Macbeth uh, set as a series of things, but as a condition for people to enter into as an experience. And then once we start thinking that way, we say, well, what is it? What is actually the internal experience of being immersed in this? Because I could, I could just be on my headphones and maybe I'm inside this Macbeth world, but actually I'm just listening to uh, Yale University Press podcasts and I'm immersed in that. I'm not in that world. Um, or how immersed, what does it take to be fully immersed. You start to ask these questions. Oh, well, maybe maybe I'm physically immersed, but now that I know the story of Macbeth, because I studied it before I came to this show, I'm psychologically immersed. I'm, I'm engaged in the story, right? These are experience design questions about immersion. They're actually sort of totally different things. Experience design is basically a process immersion 
is kind of an adjective. I'm, am I immersed? It is something that is immersive, has this quality of surrounding me physically or psychologically. And perhaps I'm even ontologically immersed. That means that the meaning that is in this space, that is in this experience, is my meaning. I am at the Vatican because I am a Catholic and I and I find that meaningful. So the meaning there is 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 immersive for me, whereas for perhaps uh, a non-believer going to the Vatican might be psychologically immersive because they're a student of history, but the meaning might not be there for them. And so the, the experience designer asks these questions, and that is kind of at the core of the practice. Experience design is a practice. Immersion is, is a quality of a design. And anything can be an experience design. A book is experiential podcast is experiential. Everything has an experience on the other side of it. The question is, are we considering our approach to it from the point of view of that experience, i.e., is it a good podcast because it's well-produced or is it a good podcast because it has a certain desired effect on my audience? Mm. I I appreciate it and appreciate how uh, the examples that you give in the book and some of the examples that you've talked about just now um, are both examples of experiences or designs having been created sort of from within the framework of experience design as an academic discipline. And some of them predate that. And it's very unlikely that the people who had anything to do with structuring them and creating them had experience design as an academic discipline in mind. uh, An early story in the book is about um, the process of viewing an artwork titled Lightning Field by an artist named Walter DeMaria. Um, would you tell that story right now, actually? We can have story time. I was just, I was just thinking about that today. That's funny. Um, you know, so the Lightning Fields is a piece of land art and um, it's located at a place in the desert where you're so far from any human structure that you could just, you have a kind of 360 view of nothing but desert and the one house. And of course the installation, the, the, I think it's, I think it's a thousand, I forget the details, but, uh, a large number of lightning rods, uh, play, planted in the desert to catch lightning when there's a lightning storm and to create this incredible, performance of lightning dancing across the tops of the lightning rods. Um, and the postcards show this incredible performance. <laughs> the, the Online, if you look up the lightning fields, you'll see pictures of this. And you can go. You can go and visit the lightning fields. But unlike, say, Spiral Jetty or uh, most other land art or public art, um, you can't just drive by run over, take a couple pictures and drive off. You have to spend the night. In fact, you have to reserve your spot months, maybe years in advance. I hear the line is getting quite long and you don't even get to drive to it. You drive to the nearby town of Camado, which means burned, uh, New Mexico, where you leave your car and you get picked up by this, by this cowboy who, who, gives you a ride in his truck. And that ride is across the desert. It seems like there aren't really roads there, but but I guess there are. And eventually you end up at 
uh, at this at this cabin. And he built the cabin, and all the while you're riding with him, you you you're you're having the opportunity to talk to him about it. Oh, he was one of the people who built the lightning field and also worked on the very large array. And he's a kind of very soft-spoken guy. He won't say a lot to you if you don't ask. And uh, and then and he leaves you there. And there's a there's several bedrooms and and a, and a porch. And you can go out and look at the lightning fields and wait for the lightning. Uh, and then he plans to come back and get you the next day. Of course, um, when I went, there was no lightning. In fact, I've known quite a few people have gone and there's never been lightning. Um, so from a certain point of view, the lightning fields is, is a failure for all of these people. But if you consider what actually happens, the remarkable experience of going there, it's, uh, it's actually an incredible experience design. You spend 24 hours in this cabin, so far away from human structures that you can't see another one and stuck with strangers and enchiladas in the freezer that you can heat up in the microwave and eat and nothing else. Um, it's not called a, a digital detox or, or, a, or, or, or a retreat or a social experiment or anything like that, but, but it is all of these things. Uh, it is in many ways a social experiment. What happens when you put strangers in this space? It is also an experiment in ways of looking and seeing because you've, you've come here with a vision in mind, with a kind of an aesthetic sensibility. And just like when you go to a museum, you, you come with a way of looking but for perhaps just for an hour or half an hour, however long you're going to spend at the museum. Um, so at the lightning fields, you come with a way of looking. There's, um, there's a kind of a sense of a pilgrimage to, um, to, a, 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 to a site of transcendent aesthetic experience. And that has an effect. That's a kind of a framing it's kind of a framing for a way of seeing. And so the entire time that you're there, you're inside this frame of this way of seeing in community with other people who may have come from God knows where, from Europe or Africa or anywhere. And um, together you're in this condition, in this frame of seeing, in a social space where you get to meet people. And when else in your life do you have just that very experience? And it doesn't matter that the lightning never comes because the actual experience design is that condition. Experience design is not about planting experiences in people's brains. Uh, it's about creating the conditions for the possibility of certain experiences to emerge. It's, it's a collaboration between the designer and the audience. Uh, in that sense, it's very hard. It's a very hard thing to kind of get a design mind around, you know, I, I like the that scene in the Matrix where the the architect uh, of the Matrix, which is the which is the digital world that all humans inhabit, thinking they're in the real world, uh, saying that he originally made a perfect world with no problems, but people kept messing it up, and it really bugged him. So he had to make this imperfect world, which was just too bad, and that's that's so uh, emblematic of of the problem of design. It wants perfection it wants to control for everything um, but uh, he realized he had to let go he had to involve invoke choice this is an experience design moment the the lightning field is 
a brilliant piece of experience design because all it does is create this condition, this remarkable condition, and then let you engage with it. Um, and then you leave um, without a good photograph of lightning dancing across the lightning rods, but with a story to tell and which is more valuable. That's so interesting and such a key component. But I do have to ask whether any part of you felt like you had an unfulfilled experience in any way because there was no lightning and whether you're motivated to go back on the hope that you might see lightning on a, on a second visit. Well, you know, I'd spoken to a lot of people who've gone, they hadn't seen lightning either. Right. So I, I knew, Mm. I knew. And was there disappointment? Yeah. I would suggest though that, that that disappointment is part of the experience. If you've ever, if you've ever bought a lottery ticket and not won a hundred million dollars, uh, you know what I'm talking about. Who's yeah, done that? <laughs> <laughs> right? right? But I, I would argue there's some, that it's worth it. Every time I buy a lottery ticket, it puts me in a certain mind of thinking about abundance, of having a certain kind of conversation with whoever it is that I'm sharing that ticket with. Um, I don't think we're, we're doing just a, a bad investment. I think we're engaging in, in a little thought experiment and we're able to project ourselves just for a moment into what it would be. We ask questions about our values. We ask questions about our relationships. Who are you going to give the money to? Are you going to keep it all to yourself? What are you going to invest in? This is a really valuable thought exercise. Two bucks. It's all it costs. So I'd like to finish uh, by returning to your book. You uh, you said earlier that uh, a book can be an experience, and I think um, your book achieves that. And I wonder if you would talk a little bit about the design process and the marvelous Erica Holman who, um, you know, who brought this vision to life. Uh, it was it was so amazing to be able to work with Erica on this and to be able to work with a publisher, Yale, who was willing to sort of take the take the leap and, and allow an outside designer to run wild as it were on the design. Um, we had we had a really interesting challenge in front of us. We wanted to create a graphic language for for the book that would um, that that would be exciting that would make the book feel like one was going on a kind of an adventure. Um, that that it was that that it was in a way its own world, and so that had to have all the all the kind of graphic consistency that any any bit of world building needs, but that wouldn't be distracting from the reading. It was a it was a real uh, eye opening process for me. I love crazy design books. You know, I, I teach in this graphic design program, even though I'm really an experienced designer, and and I just get so excited by eye candy books. But in our experiments, we found that that if we brought too much eye candy in, it would distract from the reading. And that what we really needed to do was to think about um, design as um, not merely, of course, just a container for words. It's not like you, um, there was this old phrase when I, when I actually was pretending to be a graphic designer professionally, way back when that you just flow a book and the idea it sort of sounded like you just kind of pour the pour the words into the cup that is the book and it just sort of fills it up um 
so we didn't want that. But uh, there was a kind of a, a a wish for the these these graphic moments to be moments that kind of um, that that created a visual symbolic comprehension of what you had just read. And so a lot of our work was around creating symbolic systems. You can see on the cover that there's this kind of a filigree um, that goes uh, sort of brighter and darker uh, overlaying the image. That filigree is made of the, some of the symbols that are developed in the book and then repeated. There's even, there's a kind of, it's it's just a spot color book and the, the spot color, the, the green in it is used to, um, to illustrate in a subconscious way moments when we were talking about experience, not things. And so if you start to read through the book that way, it's sort of like, it's sort of like uh, in one of those movies when things go from black and white to color, right? It's this, it's, it's meant to have this subtle, this subtle effect of, of, of building excitement around, uh, around the experience. And then we also, uh, wanted to actively engage the reader in considering the book as an object. So you're asked to to write things in the book and to, to cut out pages, to um, to uh, place things on the book, uh, to note the moment when you started reading the book, so you could come back to the book and look at it again. We we were both lovers of uh, of marginalia of of the way books. Um, uh, accrue a life over time, over multiple readings by the same person or by different people in a library. And so we, we tried to build that into this book as well. And, and, and one of the greatest challenges for me, um, as you might tell from this conversation, was to try to keep it concise because uh, I wanted very much for this book to be the kind of book you could sit down in the morning and finish in the afternoon. Um, uh, a one-day read, and so I had to keep it um, brief but compelling. Um, and for that, I had many editors to thank, as well as a, a kind of sense of forbearance. <laughs> well, thank you so much, Abraham, for writing the book, for talking to me about it, and for everything that you do to encourage people to design experientially, not only if they are self-described designers, but when they are not. And there are ways to approach so many parts of life from an experienced design mindset that uh, has the potential to make things more interesting. Thanks, Jessica. It's been really wonderful talking to you. The book Experience Design, a participatory manifesto, is available now in bookstores and online. Thank you for listening. And please visit us online at yalebooks.com for more episodes of the podcast, as well as information about all of our books.